Hi, this is filmmaker and author Michael Morin. Whenever I'm not riding my bike around the Davis campus, I'm listening to KDVS College Radio right here. FM. Cool. This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We're going to have uh, some special guests on today's show. We're going to speak with a film historian. David Keene about uh, something that happened 90 years ago this week, the release of the film The Tramp, starring Charlie Chaplin, uh, made in SNA Studios in Niles, uh, currently part of the larger city of Fremont. Uh, Charlie Chaplin is, uh, well, in our minds, still the king of comedy, and we look forward to speaking with Mr. Keene about this little bit of film history that took place rather locally. You think of Southern California as where movies are made, but um, uh, back in the 19-teens, there was a thriving studio at the mouth of Niles Canyon, which you may have traversed between Pleasanton and Fremont, and um, Charlie Chaplin was there, made some classics, and we'll talk to him about that in our second segment today. And if you're looking out the window, perhaps some of you are commuting right now looking out the window, you will notice that there are butterflies galore. Something unusual is taking place. And we're going to speak with a butterfly expert right here at UCD. Dr. Arthur Shapiro will be joining us in our third segment to discuss this unusual natural event. And if we have time, we're going to try and track down what happened to our missing Hollywood agent David Rosenblum has not made an appearance on this show for some time, and uh, his wife Judy has agreed to talk to us, and she's apparently got some updates as to what's happened to David, and it apparently is rather dramatic. Evidently, David was uh, caught up in the tsunami that struck Southeast Asia in December. All right, we're getting near the tax crunch time here, middle of April. Uh, in fact, uh, tomorrow is the deadline. I guess it's midnight, April 15th. We would note the following story in conjunction with that. Tax cheating is on the rise, the Internal Revenue Service reported. Unpaid income taxes now exceed $300 billion, 15% of the total taxes owed. The worst offenders are individuals who underreport their income. IRS officials say they might try to reverse the trend by auditing more self-employed and wealthy filers. People who aren't paying their taxes shift the burden to the rest of us, said IRS Commissioner Mark Everson. Might be a good time to remind you that in four of the last five of its years of existence, the Enron Corporation, or technically I guess they're still around, but before they filed for bankruptcy... The Enron Corporation, in four of its last five years, paid zero in federal income taxes, which I have to admit would somewhat tend to shift the burden to the rest of us. And a statistic that I just love that comes from CNNMoney.com, unproductive meetings, poor communication, and hazy objectives gobble up two of every five work days, 
according to a Microsoft survey. Workers reported spending, on average, 5.6 hours a week in meetings, rating 69% of them, quote, ineffective, unquote. Personally, I'm astounded that this survey noted that 31% evidently of meetings were somewhat effective. That's a lot better than I've ever seen. That would be effective at anything. I don't know. Most, most meetings... I have a serious goal in life, if, if possible, to avoid all meetings. It isn't really possible, but it's a worthy goal. And an, a mail that was sent to us I think I should share with you uh, may prove useful. Ten excuses for falling asleep at your desk. Say you're caught by your teacher, your your boss, your professor, asleep at the desk. Here are 10 excuses you might offer. How about, whew, guess I left the top off the liquid paper. <laughs> this is a good one. Amen. <laughs> or uh, you might say, boy, that cold medicine I took last night just won't wear off. You, you might try, darn, why did you interrupt me? I'd almost figured out a solution to our biggest problem. And my favorite uh, excuse, I'm just giving you a truncated version for being caught falling asleep at your desk. They told me at the blood bank this might happen. And as what what has become somewhat of an institution on this program, uh, uh, a public affairs host's best friend, the Week magazine's Good Week 4, Bad Week 4 section, The magazine rated last week a bad week for modern art after a British graffiti artist smuggled one of his own pieces into New York's Museum of Modern Art and hung it on the wall. Three days passed before anyone noticed it wasn't part of the collection. (laughs) And evidently it was a bad week for stereotypes after a Slovenian TV program discovered that a fashion model was a genius. The show's producers intended to mock model Iris Mulej by filming her as she took a series of intelligence tests, but found that her IQ was 156, higher than the nuclear physicist who took the same tests. But uh, even more enjoyable than that comes from the Good Week 4 section. It was evidently, evidently a good week for making do after a woman in India got married to a clay pot the pot contained a photograph of the woman's fiancé who was late for the wedding due to heavy snow. And my personal favorite, it was evidently a good week for medical breakthroughs after Russian scientists found that caning people on their naked buttocks served as an excellent treatment for depression, alcoholism, and other problems. At first, they didn't like it, one of the doctors said of his test subjects, But when they started to feel the benefits, they kept asking for more. I would like to acknowledge our producer, Edward McMillan, for those wonderful musical selections that he picks to perk up our broadcasts. And, um... And on that note, I would like to note one of the most phony baloney uh, planted stories I've seen in a while. If you're on NBC, MSNBC yesterday, you would have noticed that Bush media strategist Mark McKinnon had a story picked up by ABC about George Bush's iPod selections. 
During the the during the piece, they admitted that it was actually media strategist Mark McKinnon who had chosen these selections for iPod, which were then presented to the public as what George Bush listens to, thereby implying that one might gain some insight into the mind of Mr. Bush by his musical selections, ignoring the fact that these were not selections he had picked. And to be honest, when we saw this story, we knew something was up. It just didn't make sense the president was listening to my Sharona, Joni Mitchell selections, Hall & Oates. So we did some inquiries. We do have some connections in, in Washington, and we were actually able to come up with a list of what really is on George Bush's iPod. And our sources assure us that these are the selections that George W. Bush himself downloaded. So unlike the speculations on the ABC story, we'll, we'll play the selections that we know that George Bush downloaded and see if we can't figure out uh, you know, when he might be listening to these pieces of music. Okay, the first one, our intelligence sources tell us that President Bush listens to when he meets with some of his Wall Street cronies. So let me get right to the point. I don't pop my cork for every guy I see. Hey, big spender! Spend a little time with... Now see, now see that, that rings true to us, that he'd play that while... Uh, talking to some financiers down there on Wall Street. Now, the following selection, we have it on good authority, came from George Bush's iPod uh, in conjunction with his last visit with Donald Rumsfeld and people from the Pentagon. Now, oddly enough, apparently the president has downloaded the following selection several times at Camp David, uh, uh, once on his ranch in Crawford, and, and more than once in the White House, which, which leads us to believe that he listens to this number quite frequently. I'd unravel every riddle for any individual in trouble or in pain. With the thoughts you'd be thinking you could be another Lincoln if you only had a brain. Gosh, it would be awful pleasing to reason out the reason for things I can't explain. Then perhaps I'll deserve you and be even worthy of you if I only had a brain. Yes, we're pretty sure that... uh... With the thoughts he'd be thinking, he's not going to be another Lincoln, no matter what. And that's uh, not the best segue, but but um, oddly enough, today does mark the 140th anniversary of the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, April 14th, 1865. Lincoln, of course, was assassinated by actor John Wilkes Booth, who was part of a conspiracy. Um, we're going to speak, I think, probably two weeks from now, with Edward Steers, Jr. Dr. Steers is a Ph.D. medical researcher who, by odd coincidence, was working on, I think, the ninth floor of the National Institute's uh, 
Clinical Center in Bethesda, Maryland, when, when yours truly was living, I think, a floor below as part of a program here from UC Davis where we went back and uh, took part in, in research at the NIH. But uh, in addition to being a, uh, a biological scientist, I guess you would say, he's also been a, an, an amateur historian and done some very good work on the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. We look forward very much to speaking with uh, Dr. Steers in the weeks to come. We'll refer you in the meantime to uh, uh, a magazine titled Lincoln, which seems to be on a lot of newsstands right now. He has the article on page 34 titled The Confederate Connection, uh, noting that operatives of the Confederate Secret Service may have played a part in John Wilkes Booth's, John Wilkes Booth's assassination plot. It is an interesting story, to be sure. And we've got a few miscellaneous items to run through I think we'll end uh, this first segment with. Um, first off, last month, uh, the Chinese government threatened Taiwan. They passed a law which um, said that China can deploy the military if the government believes that Taiwan is moving toward independence, even if Taiwan has taken no formal legal action, which is sort of odd because Taiwan has been independent of the uh the communist regime on, Medlin, on mainland China since 1949 when Chiang Kai-shek uh, uh, took his army, invaded Taiwan, and set up martial law, which I think is still in effect. I could be wrong, but it isn't exactly a hotbed of democracy. It is quite strange that uh, for, for many, many years in the Cold War, the United States was the staunchest defender of Taiwan against, uh, against Red China, now that uh, we're in business together, we are slowly edging uh, toward neutrality on this issue. Of course, we can depend on uh, the, the Wall Street Journal to, t to take the, uh, the pragmatic view on this. Uh, George Malone, writing in the Wall Street Journal, said, Let's not get so distracted by this Taiwan si sideshow that we miss the real trends in China. Why, thanks to its booming economy, a growing number of China's 1.3 billion citizens are more affluent and in better touch with the outside world. <laughs> Not sure what that has to do with saber-rattling against Taiwan, but, uh, you know, I guess as long as uh, we're making a ton of dough, the Wall Street Journal is going to say, hey, what's the big deal? Of course, we get a somewhat different view from the Renmin Ribao, Chinese Communist Chinese Communist Party newspaper, which noted that in the past year, China has shut down nearly 50,000 internet cafes for breaking its censorship laws. Almost all the offenses fell into two categories, allowing minors access to the internet or failing to block websites with, quote, harmful cultural information, unquote. An estimated 87 million Chinese use the Internet. The government supports the technology for scientific and teaching purposes, but takes great pains to prevent its use for political activism. Well, Wall Street Journal didn't mention that, huh? We have not until now commented on the passing of Pope John Paul II. Uh, I think we should uh, note that uh, in some ways he was... A, somewhat more liberal pope than, than many others. He did certainly offer olive branches to, uh, to the, the, the Greek Orthodox Church, uh, trying to heal the schism that's been in place for a thousand years. He made, uh, made great effort to heal the rift with, uh, with the Jews. But uh, all in all, uh, birth control remains uh, verboten in the Catholic Church. 
And that does impact medicine right here in California. I, I work in a clinic that is affiliated with a Catholic institution. And if I write a prescription for birth control pills, they can't get it filled in our pharmacy because the church doesn't allow it. Note on April 2nd in, in uh, Chicago, Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich issued an emergency rule that would require pharmacies to accept and fill prescriptions for contraceptives without delay after a growing number of complaints nationwide that some pharmacists were refusing to dispense birth control pills and the morning after pill. And that continues to be a great battle in this country, a political battle, much as, uh, much as it's a battle in the Catholic Church. We do want to say one good thing about Pope John Paul. Uh, he did finally admit in 1992 that Galileo was correct about the earth going around the sun. So I, for one, would not argue that the Catholic Church is not making progress. I just wish it would make more progress than advancing into the 15th century. Final interesting item from the letters section of New Scientist magazine uh, from February. They were speculating about uh, things that we needed for space voyages, long space voyages to prevent people from killing each other in deep space missions of you know six months or longer to go to Mars. And a reader wrote in uh, mentioning the experience of keeping three-man crews on remote lighthouses. Uh, certain measures were instituted to keep up their morale, which the the reader um, from Edging Hill, Kent, UK, John Humback noted that each man had his own supplies down to the last matchbox and packet of sugar, all marked with its owner's name. Cooking was by roster, but the man responsible was expected to prepare three different meals according to individual preferences and supplies. What I find curious, there was no lending borrowing or giving at any time except presumably in an emergency. Long experience had shown that this practice was the only way to guarantee harmonious relationships in a small crew isolated for long periods with no hope of rapid physical contact with the mainland. Interesting lesson from the 19th century that may have some applications in the 21st. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. This is KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento. Stay tuned for our second segment. We'll be talking a little bit about uh, a giant of motion picture comedy, the great Charlie Chaplin in the next segment. So stay tuned as we will speak with uh, author and film historian David Keene. <laughs> 